0: The average person on IM will flicker between web browser and IM an average of 77 times per day. Rather than checking email in a reactive way, sitting in front of the inbox and responding to email in real time, you want to wait for a certain critical mass to accumulate, and then you perform the task. Coming up, learn how to live a four-hour work week from serial entrepreneur Tim Ferriss, next on Change Nation from First30days.com.
1: Tim Ferriss has been called the Indiana Jones of the digital age. Not only is he an entrepreneur, but he was also a cage fighter in Japan, a hurling competitor in Ireland, and a glycemic index researcher. And all the while, he's been able to do this without working more than about four hours a week. He certainly didn't always live his life this way. He spent his early career days slugging through 12, 14-hour days for his first business. But now that he's mastered this jet-setting lifestyle, he's shared all his secrets in his New York Times bestseller, The 4-Hour Workweek. Today on Change Nation, Tim is here to explain if you really can just work four hours a week, how to do it, and how you can get a lot more out of life. Welcome, Tim. It's great to have you on the show.
0: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: So, Tim, was there a, something that happened in your own life that made you want to either stop working or work a lot less? Did you have some big inspiration or wake-up call?
0: Uh, there definitely was a very specific turning point. Uh, this was early 2004. So, from, from 2000 to 2004, I uh, worked in Silicon Valley first as uh, a low-level employee in a data storage company. It's a very high-tech internet bubble. Uh, type of startup environment, uh, sleeping under the desk uh, and waking up to continue work on deadline, uh, working on holidays, sending email to prospects one Thanksgiving from the office and doing conference calls, believe it or not, but uh, which is a fairly typical uh, portrait in uh, the Silicon Valley startup life. People really wear that workaholic overwork ethic as a, a badge of, of pride on some level. And then later as a CEO of my own company and continued to work the hours like you mentioned so uh, beginning in 2003 however I, I also started teaching these guest lectures at Princeton University in high tech entrepreneurship and the subject matter initially was how to build highly profitable companies without outside financing which I had done in early 2004 however I had a long-term girlfriend uh, end our relationship and <laughs> Her parting gift, which will explain everything, her parting gift was a plaque, basically, that said business hours end at 5 p.m. And she gave it to me, and she said, you should really just keep this on your desk as a reminder, not so much for me or for anyone else, but just for your own health and life. You need to keep this as a reminder. And that was a rather abrupt and... uh, strong uh, reminder, uh, (laughs) incentive to re-examine my life. And at that point, I was making more per month. I mean, in in some months, I was generating uh, upwards of $100,000 a month than I'd been making uh, annually prior to that. Uh, But I came to the realization that income had no practical value without time. And in a digital world, Time is the scarcest non-renewable resource. Uh, And and then you also have mobility and income as currencies. But time is the the determining sort of uh, parent currency, so to speak. And so I spent the next several years uh, going through more than a dozen countries, doing interviews, case studies, all for myself, uh, redesigning, completely uh, automating almost all of my business uh, with systems and different types of rules and so forth. And this ended up culminating uh, in uh, a class that I taught from Argentina, where I was preparing for the World Championships of tango. And I taught this guest lecture uh, to the Princeton students at the phone, and I introduced this concept of lifestyle design. And that's where this whole adventure began. And uh, so the book came out a little bit over a year ago, and... uh, it's been it's been on the bestseller list since it came out. It's really uh, it's coming out in thirty languages. So that's 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 the brief history. But most certainly, I had a very very strong wake up call early on, and I'm glad that I had it uh, earlier rather than later, which I think happens to a lot of people.
1: So, Tim, do you describe yourself as a lifestyle designer?
0: Uh, I would. Uh, I, I think that. I would describe myself first and foremost as an experimentalist. I think, I, I think that lifestyle designer could make it sound cliched, uh, whereas I think, that, I think the concept and principles of lifestyle design are a very real, practical uh, alternative to long-haul career planning under the retirement-based model, which uh, a very famous venture capitalist named Randy Comisar is called the Deferred Life Plan, which is a term that I borrowed and put and use in the book. So I really think that this, this retirement-based Deferred Life Plan is obsolete in many, many respects, given the tools that we now have at our, at our disposal. So I would consider myself an experimentalist, but lifestyle design is certainly one area that I do a lot of experiments.
1: Tim, is it, is it really four hours, or is four hours a metaphor? Like, is it three, is it six, is it ten, or is it, like, really four?
0: Uh, you know, the, there are a few things I would say. Uh the first is that the the book is a collection of case studies uh and there there are even more case studies on the blog but there are examples. i uh, I'm one of them where amount the, know, I spend actually probably less than two hours per month on income driven activities and <laughs> Uh, initially there were a number of different potential titles for the book and then one of the potential titles was the two-hour work week and they said, no, 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 that's much too unrealistic. And so the compromise title was the four-hour workweek. Uh, there are case studies in the book of people who have reduced it down to that level, but there are two important uh, footnotes to that. The first is that the objective is not to be inactive. So the goal is not to lay on a beach rubbing cocoa butter in your stomach for the next 40 years if you do that. Um, I spend a lot of time on education, science and math education in the U.S., building schools overseas, active writing, technology investment. I'm a very, very active guy, um, but I spend time on what I want to spend time on. The second thing is that there's a very large subset of the population uh, who actually don't hate their work, work that much, whether they're teachers, editors, writers, pastors. Uh, even most entrepreneurs, they, they, they may not necessarily dislike the industry, the company, the type of work. The volume is simply too high. So they might want to simply reduce it from 80 to 40 hours, or 80 to 30 hours, or to eliminate unpaid overtime on the evenings and weekends. And so there are different case studies for each of those demographics of the book.
1: So I want you to jump right into it. What are, what are two or three things that really everyone can do to mm-hmm. save a few hours in their day or week?
0: So There are a number of very concrete things that you can do. Um, The the first is to recognize that in a digital world, there will always be more information than attention. So there are a number of assumptions that you can hold as your basic rules for your personal operating system. So if we assume that there's always more information than attention, that demands a few things. The first is that you develop a degree of selective ignorance. And what that means is that you develop filters <clears throat> so that you reduce your information consumption and increase your output. So you either have input or output. It's a one way street. And there are a number of ways to do that. The first is a very simple concept called batching. So most people check email. Well, for example, I am even. Uh, there's a company called Rescue Time. So if you go to rescuetime.com, you can download a free program that will show you exactly where you spend your time both online and on your computer so you can get productivity diagnostics. I recommend everyone do that. What you'll notice is that, for example, among 40,000 of their users, the average person on IM will flicker between web browser and IM an average of 77 times per day. (laughs) So if you've ever wondered how you could possibly check email, have one conference call, go to lunch, and then have your work day end at 5 p.m. with nothing accomplished, that's how. So you want to begin practicing a uh, a principle called batching. So what this means is that rather than checking email in a reactive way, sitting in front of the inbox and responding to email in real time, just like you wouldn't wash uh, your laundry, do a new uh, load of laundry every time you have a dirty pair of socks, you want to wait for a certain critical mass to accumulate, and then you perform the task. And this avoids what's called task switching. So most people spend up to 28% of their week, so it's one to one and a half days between tasks, doing no productive work. So let's just say that instead of checking email reactively, you do it at 10 a.m., 2 p.m., and then 4.30 uh, in your in your time zone. And the way that you make this work is a, a very, there's actually a very low-tech way to do this, uh, which has become popular in Silicon Valley, and that's using a... An autoresponder, so like a vacation so all, everyone has seen the email response. You know, I'm out of the office, I'm on vacation, I'll be back Tuesday. In my absence, please contact so-and-so. Well, you can use this autoresponse in a different way. And that's on a permanent basis where you could go into Gmail or Outlook and set this up so that every one of your contacts gets this response once per week. And it says, dear esteemed colleagues and uh, clients, uh, I'm checking and responding to email each day at the following times, let's say 10 a.m., 2 p.m., 4.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time or whatever your time zone is. Uh, if you need anything urgent before one of these two times or between these times, please call me on my cell phone. I am available. Here's the number. Thank you very much for understanding this move to greater efficiency and escaping the inbox to do actual productive work. <laughs> and then your name. And there are many different ways to phrase this. And if you go to uh, the blog, if you just go to 4hourworkweek.com blog, um, there are many different templates for doing that, and what you find is this gives you the breathing room to focus on predefined to-dos, the critical few, as opposed to responding to the trivial many and the manufactured emergencies that people will create mm. to fill time.
1: Actually, you mentioned the the two words, the to-do list. Do, mm-hmm. do you still have a to-do list? I know in the book you talk about having a not to-do list.
0: Right. So there are so there are different. I do have a to-do list, and I have a a more important not to do list. Uh, but let me I will get to that uh, very quickly, and I'll introduce it with the first not to do, which is do not check email first thing in the morning. Um, that is why the first email check is set at ten am. because first of all, you won't have a critical mass of responses from the, the prior days' of emails. Secondly, Uh, it will immediately erase any type of predefined agenda that you have if you go into a reactive bullet dodging mode by checking email first thing in the morning. So simply by focusing on the to-do list, which the way that I use it is very limited. So I actually use a very low-tech approach, which has also become popular among productivity geeks, um, which is using an 8.5 by 11 piece of paper folded up to the point where it's about let's say three and a half inches by two inches, and I will put down one or two must-do to-do's. Then we establish this, let's just say the prior day. Most people are in the habit of using Outlook in 10-minute increments to set their to-do's for the next day. And uh, what happens is you get through one-tenth of them, you copy and paste the remainder, and you put them into the next day. Of course, that doesn't scale. Um, so rather than doing that, if you if you write down a laundry list, let's say 15 things that uh, you would like to do the following day, you go through each one and you ask yourself, this is at 5 p.m. the prior day, and you would ask, if this were the only thing I accomplished tomorrow, would I be satisfied with my output? And and you only take the one or two to which you can answer yes, and you put them on that to-do list. And that is how I use the to-do list. I do not use uh, I do not use a Blackberry or an iPhone uh, or any type of PDA. Uh, and I actually find that technology, when defined properly, which is A tool for solving a practical problem does not need to be a shiny gadget. In fact, I think that a pen and paper or an index card can often be much more effective because they're less prone to abuse than some of
1: these tools. Um, Tim, I'm fascinated by what else is on your not-to-do list. What else don't you do? No, Uh, no, No Blackberry, no iPhone, no checking email in the morning. Do you do any work at night or you have a cutoff? There are
0: different uh, there are different ways to look at this. I I tend to so not to do another not to do on my list would be blending home and work environments. Uh, so I'm I'm not a strong proponent of work life balance. Most people are surprised by this. The reason I'm not a proponent of work life balance per se is because I think the the phrasing is very uh, misunderstood and misapplied. Balance to most people implies blending. And that's how you end up checking the BlackBerry at dinner. That's how you end up checking email when your spouse or girlfriend or boyfriend is asking you to come to bed. You say, I'll be right there. I'm just, I'll just I have five more minutes on the computer. And then, of course, you're there for another two to three hours. That's how you end up uh, wasting the first three hours of Saturday checking email when you're going to check it for a second. And then before you know it, it's getting dark, you haven't done anything personal on Saturday, and then you spend... Sunday obsessing about work on Monday. Uh, So what I recommend is that people very carefully structure their environments so that they're separate, so work-life separation. So I don't have any desktop computers. Uh, The screen will beckon you to create work. I I, I prefer laptops that can be closed and and put away. Uh, I also will not answer unrecognized phone numbers or restricted phone calls. Um, And my voicemail says very explicitly, if I don't recognize your number, um, I will not pick up unless you leave a message and explain who you are, so forth and so on. Um, I require people to leave their, their email addresses as well on the phone, making it clear that I travel often. Sometimes I'm not able to return your phone call, leave your email, and sometimes that's the only way I can get back. To it. Um, there's a, there's pretty extensive um, list of not-to-dos, but they're really only a core five to six. One of the not-to-dos is postponing scheduling life. So I, I really feel that the best way to conquer workaholism is to schedule non-work activities because let me explain type a personalities uh, intelligent ambitious people if they have to choose between feeling bored or feeling productive even if they're not productive will choose to feel productive this is why if you wait until Saturday morning to plan your weekend your default is checking email and so i encourage people who are trying to break out of certain habits that are self-destructive, uh, to put a note in their calendar no later than Tuesday, So put a note in your calendar, plan weekend, make weekend plans. I know it sounds remedial, but keep in mind that I've, I've dealt with environments in New York and San Francisco especially, where people are putting in you know, 80, 90 hours a week, and you have to replace these bad habits with new habits and a very good way to do that schedule.
1: Tim, one of the things you talk about a lot in your book is the concept of outsourcing, or I think as you called it, off choring off
0: choring right.
1: Which I love. Is that something that's accessible for anyone and everyone? I think there's probably a myth or belief that that's for a certain category of people who can afford it. How do we, how do we think about that?
0: Right, so one of the best ways to begin is to actually lay a, lay a bit of groundwork and reassess how you evaluate your income. Uh, and then I'll explain the personal outsourcing. So the first shift is to move from looking at annual income, which can be very deceptive. And I'll give you a brief example. If you, let's say, get a raise from fifty to $60,000 a year, uh, most people would celebrate that without taking into account the increase in their workloads. So you may get, let's just say, a 20% increase in in uh, annual income and then have a thirty or forty percent increase in workload, so what just happened? You just were you were effectively demoted <laughs> your hourly income just went down so the, the the promotion is an illusion really and the way that you can approximate your hourly income, which I call relative income, is by taking your annual income, chopping up the last three zeros, and then cutting the remainder in half. so if you make fifty thousand dollars a year you Cut off the last of these years, you get fifty divided by nine and a half. You make twenty-five dollars an hour. So if you can hire someone, let's just say hypothetically, to work for you for five dollars an hour to perform some time-consuming task, uh, you've effectively made a four hundred percent return on investment, which is very hard to do if you're investing in CDs, in the stock market, or bonds or what have you. It's a very effective use of capital. And uh, so even if you make thirty thousand dollars a year, all right you make $15 now. Well, guess what? You set a 200% return on investment by hiring someone else to pick up the minutiae of life. And uh, so I'll give you a very a very simple example, uh, an easy way for people to experiment with this. And you can outsource everything from online research to travel planning to reading your email. Um, I have uh, an assistant in Vancouver who, who handles almost all of my email. And I actually took all of my rules That she follows for processing my email and and posted them on a a post on my blog called The Holy Grail: (laughs) How to Check and Never Check Your Inbox Again. Uh, You can do that type of task, business task, but you can also, let's just say hypothetically, you have a son or daughter. It's their birthday that weekend. They want the hot toy of the season, the tickle me Elmo of this Christmas season, and it's impossible to find. Rather than spending three hours, four hours. Uh, on a, a hard-fought, free Saturday to call or visit all of these stores to find the one Pickle Me that's, that's available, you could call up or, or email um, tryasksunday.com, so there's a company called Ask Sunday, and ask them to call every toy store within a 10-mile radius of your zip code or your home address, which they'll have on file, and to call you after they've reserved one behind the counter in your name. And that takes 30 seconds of your time uh, and to, uh, if you go to uh, triasksunday.com, you can get 30 tasks like that for $60 a month. So Amazing. The return on investment is, is enormous.
1: Um, what, I'm just curious, Tim, what is it that you find yourself spending the majority of your time on um, these days?
0: It's a very good question. So these days, uh, I spend well. Uh, there are a few. There are a few things. Um, number one is I do enjoy the process of uh, of business creation and entrepreneurship. Uh, I just don't like making the trains run on time, <laughs> so to speak. I don't like cranking out the widgets once that that creative work is done and the create the uh, the real building is in place. So uh, I spend a lot of my time uh, meeting with entrepreneurs, and I'm getting into angel investment, which means I'm providing seed capital to technology companies uh, based in Silicon Valley, primarily. Uh, I also spend a lot of time involved with education. So uh, if, if people go to uh, Lit litliberation.org... Uh, They can see an example of a campaign I did using social media, like blogs and Facebook and so forth, to raise money for science and math education in the U.S., as well as building schools for literacy in developing countries. That took two weeks of time. It took no money to set up, because this is something anyone could do if they have the proper training or took the time to do the research. And I ended up competing to raise funds against Stephen Colbert of the Colbert Report, and also TechCrunch and Engadget, which are two of the top blogs in the world, ended up raising more eight, close to I think eight to ten times more than Engadget and TechCrunch combined, and about uh, three times more than Stephen Colbert mm-hmm. in the same period of time, with zero capital requirements and a, a website that I set up in twenty-four hours. And that would be an example of try, of rewriting the rules of the game rather than trying to outwork other people using a system that's flawed to begin with. So uh, being effective, choosing the right things to do is almost always more important than being efficient, which is becoming good at doing things whether they're important or not. Uh, And that's a distinction that I think is lost by many people who acquire gadgets and so forth to do more work, is they they don't take the time to really evaluate the difference between being effective and being efficient.
1: Tim, I'm curious, just because you're rewriting the rules in sort of the business environment, have you or are you planning to rewrite the rules in the personal and relationship love environment? Have you found, <laughs> <laughs> have you found some of your rules apply to that environment? Uh,
0: well, you know, I've, I've done a, a lot of experiments uh, to show how far some of this stuff can be pushed just for, um, number one, entertainment value. Number two... Uh, to demonstrate that there are very few limitations on what can be done. So I, I think that you know, personal relationships ultimately are personal, but uh, in, in an online world, there are options available now that would never, be up, uh, would never have been available before. So, for example, um, I was having wine with a friend of mine, and I do not, just as a caveat before I even explain this, I don't recommend that everyone do this. I don't think it's uh, the wave of the future, but it's an example of just how far you can take personal outsourcing, for example so I was having some wine with a friend of mine and he said you know I'm a, he's a professional UFC trainer he, he trains uh, mixed martial arts fighters to compete in these enormous events and he said I just don't see how I could use personal outsourcing you know I don't, I'm not on a computer all day and I was like okay well I gave him a bunch of examples of personal tasks that he could chores and so forth that he could outsource and he goes well there's some things you can't outsource right? like what and he goes well like uh, dating you gotta go out to the bars put in your face time Terrible, but you just have to do it. And I go, well, all right. Well, let's make a bet. I'll outsource my dating for four weeks. We'll see what happens. And uh, so I went to Elance, Elance.com, and I put up, a, uh, I posted a project which was setting dates in an online calendar for me, which I had to further explain later because I realized that was a little too big. And I teams in Croatia, India, Philippines, uh, Americans in Jamaica, uh, and, and other places, Poland competing. They were each allocated an, uh, a profile, like Match.com or Yahoo Personals or what have you. They were competing to set dates in uh, an online calendar. And they had all of my criteria. It was like a request for proposals. It was done just the way that you'd send out a request to like, suppliers for a technology company. And uh, you know, disqualifiers and examples and this, that, and the other thing. And they, they couldn't pretend to be me. That was a very strong rule. Uh, but they were they were delegated the task of doing this sort of arduous, slogging work of sending out all these emails and so forth. And then I batched all of my dates in one weekend. So instead of having them scattered all out and disrupting everything, I had 20-minute coffee dates all packed into two days. And I ended up having um, more than 20 dates, and uh, and I was very transparent about the whole thing with all the girls. And ended up having a long-term girlfriend out of that for almost a year until uh, travel uh, you know, she was traveling a lot, and it just and we ended up being too far apart to make it work. But uh, that's a very good example. And the entire thing, including performance bonuses, ended up uh, costing less than three hundred dollars. Okay. And if you look at the average guy who puts in, let's say, three weekends of going out and buying four gin tonics for himself, and God knows how many drinks for other people, I mean, it, you, it makes economic sense at the same time if that's your sort of comparison. But um, so, I don't think that's the wave of the future. But it's certainly an example of of just how uh, flexible for sponsors and can be. I mean, if you can think it, someone else can do it. If you can do it on a phone or on a computer, someone else can do it.
1: And I think also that the beauty of what you are doing and sharing with people with the 4-Hour work week will actually save and transform a lot of personal relationships and a lot of families.
0: Absolutely. And uh, people ask me, well, are you going to write another book? And I'm, I'm not going to go into the details of that, but I'm not in a rush. Number one, and writing is, hard, is difficult for me. I had uh, significant writing difficulties, and I still do. I have mild dysgraphia, meaning uh, writing is just a very difficult process for me. Uh, so I'm, I was hesitant, hesitant to write a book in the first place, and I'm still hesitant to write a second book. I get letters from people who say, "You know, I was on the verge of divorce. Now we're completely reconciled. You know, I actually spent time with my fiance now." Uh, to, I'm working from from home twice a week by using the, the script in your book for negotiating with my boss. Now I can actually spend time with my two-year-old, and uh, those are I, you know I I'm, I I get excited when I read about the productivity and the raises and things like that. But it's definitely the relationships uh, where the differences mean the most to me, and I I think a, a subtle distinction or realization that I came to also. Uh, around the same time as I had my wake up call in two thousand and four is that i don't i don 't believe really in the concept of personal happiness i don 't think that it 's very difficult unless you 're Buddha to have happiness in isolation. I think that interpersonal happiness is is really the objective in many respects and that uh, if you look at any of the research done on on happiness which is a problematic term in of itself but the uh, one of the main determinants of happiness is meals with friends and family like how many people actually sit down and have meals with friends and family and how often how many times per week uh... and if you if you simply take that one metric and try to in, in increase let's say the number of times that you have meals with friends and family in a real sit down setting uh, you know we're talking an hour meal an hour or two long meal uh, um, you see dramatic change in your emotional well-being so those are those are the types of case studies, the, the types of feedback that give me the itch to write another book.
1: Tim, just as we come towards the end of this, what is a day in the life of Tim Ferriss? What time do you wake up? When do you work out? What do you do?
0: <laughs> sure. Okay. So a day in the life of Tim Ferriss, uh, boy, oh boy, all right, so let's God, I wish I could pull up my calendar. So yesterday uh, I'll just give you maybe an ex- a sample day. Uh, My best, my most productive period, which is crazy for most people, I know, but after a lot of experimentation, I am most productive from 1 to 5 (laughs) a.m. Wow. Uh, It's difficult to procrastinate. It's difficult to call people. People aren't calling you. Uh, I am email pretty much, you know, for Bolton. It's it's an unusual time period. And uh, I I just feel very much calm and able to... uh, Crack a bottle of wine, have a couple of bottles, uh, have a couple of bottles, a couple of glasses of wine, <laughs> a, a glass, a, a glass of uh, green, a uh, cup of green tea, and really sit down and just think about big picture issues. Uh, really search for the things that are most exciting to me, uh, which is, I think, what most people should do if if they want happiness. Searches follow what excites you most, the ideas that would keep you up at night just because you're so eager to get started the next day, the ideas that make you jump out of bed in the middle of the night going, God, you know, I have to write that down. That's a good idea. Those are the types of things that you want to chase. And I think everything else, happiness, et cetera, will follow from that. So uh, I, I will do my most productive 80-20 analysis looking at the, the 20% that are producing 80% of the results that I want, et cetera. Uh, during that one-to-five period. I wrote almost all of my book during those periods. Um, I'll wake up, as you might expect, uh, generally on the late side, probably 10 o'clock. I will wake up, do breathing exercises uh, for my transverse abdominals. We don't have time to go into it um, for, for fat loss and a, a number of other reasons after having a cup of green tea. Uh, then I'll generally do a short workout, um, usually involving kettlebells, uh, probably 20, 25-minute workout, Take a shower, uh, get on my mountain bike, ride downtown, and have lunch. Uh, from that period until probably two o'clock, I will check in with my assistant in Vancouver, see if there are any urgent to-dos, and she'll generally contact me of her own accord. So I don't always do that. Uh, so I'll either have a five-minute phone call with her via Skype to to address action items that she needs my input on, or uh, during that time, of course, the rest of the world is working. So if I need to get in touch with someone. Uh, via email or phone. That's when I'll do it. Um, I will have a second meal uh, around 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock. And then I will either get in my car, get on my bike, and go to an indoor climbing gym where I'll meet up with uh, friends of mine and uh, climb for an hour and a half, two hours, uh, have dinner with them afterwards, come back, and then there's a a gap. There's a period of, let's say, 10 p.m. to 1 a.m., which is just relaxation. I'll usually invite friends over for wine or if they have work to do and they don't want want to be socially isolated, I'll invite three or four people over and we'll have sort of a laptop pajama party where they'll sit down and we'll throw on the TV, turn on some classical music or uh, sort of world music and pop open a a bottle of wine and just relax. And they'll be able to do their work, but it's also social. So they'll be able to to talk, bounce ideas off each other uh, if we have a, a really exciting idea, let's say like building 100 schools in one day is one thing I've been thinking about. So trying to raise enough money in one day, 24 hours, to build 100 schools. Uh, so I've built about six schools probably so far. Another half dozen in the works and I was thinking, you know what? I don't really like incremental things. Like, you know, okay, well if I did if I did a half a dozen in X period of time to do ten, like that doesn't excite me. But like okay, hundred schools in a day? Like is it impossible? I don't think so. <laughs> as soon as you set these really audacious, unrealistic goals, you, you suddenly start determining ways to pull it off. So uh and then do a little bit of work solo if I need to throw on the headphones, put on some uh crystal method, <laughs> and uh, bang out whatever it is that I'm working on, and then go to sleep and, yeah. and repeat. But the, the important point that I would bring up with my schedule, so I'm very active, I do a lot of things, the important point is that I have the option at any point to stop doing anything that I'm doing. I have the option. And that was my objective with for our work week, that's the objective with the lifestyle experiments blog, is to provide people with a menu of options alternative options to choose from and experiment with. I don't expect anyone to outsource their data, and that's crazy, you know? but I do it to show, you know, this is not impossible. None of these things are impossible. There's an entire many of options that most people are not aware of, hence all the case studies and so forth.
1: Tim, the way we end off all of our interviews here on the Change Nation show is we ask all our experts the exact same three very short questions. So here here they are. What is the belief that you personally go to during times of change in your life?
0: Boy, a few negative things are irreversible and uh, energy and interest are cyclical. So I think that whether it's self-doubt, depression, fear, I think those are all emotions that have a place and that they're part of a natural cycle, a natural rhythm. So but when you recognize that, you, you tend not to become fatalistic. Uh, and just also recognizing that very few negative things are, are anywhere near crisis, crisis level, probably not even problems, more irritations that you should not postpone and just deal with.
1: Here's a second one. Fill in the sentence, the best thing about change is...
0: <laughs> uh, the best thing about change is opportunity. That was the first word that came to mind. Uh, uh, I, I think, I think that's, that's the most appropriate
1: word. And here's the last one. What is the best change that you've ever made?
0: <sighs> daring to test the unknown. Daring having, just daring to test the unknown, whether that's what I did after this girlfriend gave me the plaque, which was I went to London for four weeks and decided that I would go four weeks checking email once per week no more than uh, one or two hours every Monday. And besides that, I would have to fill the void. I would either have to create life, which is surprisingly difficult for people who work 80 hours a week to do, or uh, find other activities, meet new people. Uh, so daring to do the uncommon, uh, recognizing that you know the best answer, the best solution, the best life is very seldom created by imitating what the majority
1: of people are doing. I love it. Tim, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for all the tips, the wisdom, the insights. I've certainly been scribbling down a bunch of notes myself.
0: Oh, it's entirely my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: So for more information on Tim, his work, his books, um, books, I'm, see, I'm already putting you in the future. His, <laughs> his best-selling book, The 4-Hour Workweek, and also his top 1,000 blog on the internet, please visit his website at 4hourworkweek.com. And that is spelt F-O-U-R-H-O-U-R workweek.com. You've been listening to Change Nation. For more experts, more information, more inspiration, please visit us at first30days.com. Thanks for listening.
0: Thanks for listening to Change Nation from first30days.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes in the Society and Culture section under Philosophy. Make sure you take time to leave us feedback about the show. We'd love to know what you think. Change Nation is a production of First30days.com. Copyright 2008. All rights reserved.